Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. In today's lesson, I'm going to talk about fundamental building blocks. In talking about fundamental building blocks, I hope to show you several things. Number one, Earth is alive. Number two, life as we know it, or we life forms, have been carefully cultivated. And this cultivation of life forms is what we would call domestication. Domestication, number three, should be seen as an energy of isolation. And number four, I have been speaking about a crossroads during this latest astrological time. Um, the astrological chart is showing us that we are standing both at a crossroads and at an intersection. And basically all of the energy that we have been dealing with over the last 500 years, longer in some parts of the world. This energy is coming to fruition right now. And a choice is going to have to be made. Domestication or extinction? Control or freedom? In this episode, I'm going to be talking about quantum mechanics as well as developmental biology. And if you think quantum mechanics is complicated, wait until we begin speaking about developmental biology. And it's for this reason that I'm suggesting that you either open up the transcript for this episode and read along while I talk, or uh, I'll put up a video of this um, episode too, and hopefully a few vis visual cues will help you understand what I'm trying to say. For today, the fundamental building blocks, um, those are what you have to have in order to achieve a goal or make a product if your goal is making a product. In biology, the fundamental building blocks are closely related to the limiting reagent. If you run out of something, then you can't make any more product. That's the limiting reagent. For instance, uh, tortillas are a fundamental building block of tacos. And if you run out of tortillas early, you can no longer make any tacos, no matter how much meat you have left over. So tortillas are the limiting reagent. If we're talking muscle, the fundamental building blocks of muscle are amino acids. And for us, for us humans, there are 20 amino acids that make muscles, that we need to make muscles. Our body can manufacture 10 of the 20, but that means that we have to eat the other 10. We can't manufacture it. So if we're in a time of famine, or simply a time of reduced access to good food, there's a possibility that we could be missing one or more of these 10 amino acids that we can't make. Um, and then we're gonna have troubles remaining healthy. So if we move from protein, um, I wanna look at the elements for a moment. Um, elements like hydrogen, sodium, carbon, um, what are the elements that are necessary for life forms? In other words, out of the 92 or so naturally occurring elements, how many does a life form use, whether it be us or 
a bacterium or a yeast cell, the dinosaurs, plants, reptiles, mammals, um, how many elements are, do we need? And out of the 92 or so naturally occurring, we use about 25 elements to make a complete individual, a complete individual life form. And that's regardless of who, what type of life form you are. So what I'm really uh, describing here is humanity's understanding of the world. Um, what we call the world, anyway. How do we understand we humans? How do we understand the way that the world is organized? How do we understand what the overall organization of where Earth is? Because when I describe fundamental building blocks and limiting reagents, that's precisely what I'm trying to describe. I'm trying to describe the overall organization of life on Earth. And I'm also trying to describe how we humans perceive our world. What do we think is necessary, both for ourselves and for others? What do we think is necessary for everything. Now part of the problem as I see it with humanity's understanding of Earth and our understanding of our relationship to Earth or with Earth is that we humans have believed that everything on Earth is meant for us. That we are the culmination of evolution. We believe we are the smartest, the most able, the most in control. So this belief, which as far as I can see, doesn't permeate just American society. It permeates scientific inquiry. It permeates astrology, because we have this whole branch of evolutionary astrology and a bunch of astrologers who absolutely believe that evolution is the end-all, be-all. And there's a similar group of astrologers who think that quantum physics is the end-all, be-all. But in this new society that we are hopefully going to be creating, we're not going to be looking to systems of thought or systems of belief to help us perceive Earth. We will not look to systems of thought or belief as a way to perceive our surroundings, to perceive danger and direction and what is enough and what needs to be changed. Rather, each of us will lend our individual perspective to the group, and the group will make the decision. And if you don't want to go along with the group, well, you don't have to. Um, go out and watch a, a group of birds decide whether they want to fly away or not. And um, if they hear a noise or something, it, it can take them a second or two, particularly if they're Canadian geese. And then... The deciders are the first ones to leave, and then the next ones are the ones who are having a little bit more trouble deciding. Um, they leave, and then the ones who had an even bigger trouble deciding, well, they may or may not leave. Inevitably, one or two geese end up staying in the area, and that's okay. Everyone seems to meet back up somehow, just fine. But there's no bird running around telling everybody how to make decisions. 
The birds are not consulting either quantum mechanics or religion, or astrology for that matter, to tell them what is wrong about a situation. And then at the core of everything, we humans, what we do, well, at the core of everything that we do is, is an assumption. And we humans assume, because we have been told, because we believe that we are the center of the universe. We are the pinnacle of creation. Creation is for us. We are the most intelligent, the most able. Um, and we get to make decisions for everybody else because of it. We get to decide who lives and who dies. We get to decide who gets help and who gets ignored. And we have this thing called science. And we have scientists who study all types of things. But when I look at science, I see scientists mainly studying and observing from the viewpoint of what humanity needs, what humanity controls. And this is a pretty one-sided assumption, and we're basing everything else on it. And it's not just science that is doing this. Our religion says the same thing, only even more strongly. Humans live on this planet as if everything here is for us only. We have religions the world over. I'm speaking mostly of Bible-believing Christians. Um, they believe that the world is a gift from God. Even Judaism has a cornerstone of its med med medical ethics that says that God gave the gift of life to humans. And this is an assumption. And we live as if it is true. But we've never actually stopped to check. We've never actually asked anybody else. We just zoom in and make decisions. We zoom in and we take. We zoom in and we kill. And this assumption that we're making, it could be catastrophic because if it's wrong, the assumption that we are the most special, most powerful, most deserving, most in control, if that assumption is wrong, then everything else is wrong that comes after it. Everything. And a real problem that I see, Christianity, at least the Bible-believing Christianity, is married to governmental power structures, while science has married itself to technology. Um, astrologers haven't yet married themselves to anybody, thank goodness, but... There are many astrologers who look longingly at evolution and at quantum mechanics. And because of this, we are in danger of making a mistake. And I say all of this because I want to ask the question, what is life? I'm asking that question today. And I'm going to ask that question um, through another question. The question that I'm asking is what are the things that everything alive has in common as a basic need? At least everything that we assume is alive, because our science and our religion, and as I see it, our astrology too, is all telling us to pay no attention to Earth. Earth is not alive. It's almost as if she doesn't even exist. Um... It's all humans this, God that, universe, universe this, higher self that. Nothing about Earth ever. And so I'm going to step out of the assumption that we have made for as long as we can remember. 
And I'm asking you to make this step with me, at least for the duration of this episode. Um, I want to understand what's going on, and so I'm going to look back at what we know. But I'm going to look back at what we know without the lens of belief. All right. So the reason that I want to step outside our assumptions is because um, I want to see if we've made a mistake as well. Um, the energy on Earth says it's okay to make a mistake, but it's only okay to make a, a mistake assuming that you can see your mistake. And of course, assuming that your mistake isn't something that's been running all the way through everything for millennia. Um, if we humans have made a mistake and we are not the center of the universe, that we are not the most intelligent we are not the most able life form on earth, then we need to correct our mistake as soon as possible. Um, we need to change the way we're doing things. And that's essentially the energy of the earth. If you make a mistake, but be ready to correct it if given the chance. And earth is giving us the chance to correct our mistakes. So, okay, here we go. Into life without the lens of belief. All right, let's talk energy for one second. Energy is quite often the limiting reagent for human systems, or for any system for that matter. When you have a body, whether it's an animal body or a plant body, access to energy has always been a big deal here on Earth. I've talked about how the central event on Earth is energy transformation. I've talked about this in past episodes. Um, energy on Earth is constantly transforming, transforming itself from one form into another. For instance, we have solar energy from the sun, and it transforms into chemical energy when a leaf captures the light in a chloroplast. And then... The leaf transfers the chemical energy to stored energy, potential energy, so that it can use the sun's energy for a cloudy day. But then a bear comes along and it eats the leaf. And the stored energy inside the leaf is first ground down through mechanical and chemical means inside the, the mouth and the intestinal gut uh, of the bear. And then the energy is transported inside the bear's body. And then it's uh, stored chemical energy of the leaf. It's taken apart bit by bit and transported into the far regions of the bear's body. And every step in this process is a transformation. Every step. Uh, we talk a lot about energy transformation, but the reality is that there is a whole lot of energy transport going on, of movement. And where is that transport supposed to go? Well, where does the movement end up? You know, we're moving energy from one place to another constantly. Is it going in a particular direction or is it just moving from one spot to another and it's all chaotic? Um, I suspect it's going in a direction because the, while we think we're the pinnacle of, of uh, creation, this energy transport doesn't all go to humans, although we steal a lot of it, yes, but 
we humans are not the benefactors of, of everything. Um, oops, I'm going too fast in that part. Uh, on this highway of energy movement from one place to another inside the body of one life form and then it gets moved inside the body of another life form inside the body of another life form um, this the end step as I see it it's meant for a parasite that's essentially what is happening um, energy is moved around on earth Life forms are free to use the energy in any way that they need, but all roads lead to a parasite. And when it hits a parasite, the parasite is going to dra um, drain the energy of whoever it is that was the penultimate step on that highway. So for instance, with our, our bear, um, the bear eats the leaf that was the energy Let's, let's start over from the sun again. I want to start from the sun. The sun has energy, and it gives off light. The light travels the eight minutes, comes into the earth, and it hits the leaf of a plant. And then the leaf captures that light and stores it as chemical energy um, in the form of a sugar. And then, by chance... The bear comes along and eats the leaf and chews it up, swallows it. All the energy that was in that leaf eventually makes its way into the cells of the bear through a series of chemical transformations, of energetic transformations, I'm sorry. But then the bear runs into a parasite and the parasite grabs a hold of the bear and takes the bear down for everything he or she is worth. Once the parasite gets a hold of the bear, the bear is ragged and worn down or even dead. And of course, if the bear dies, there is still energy stored in the body. And so scavengers come and they eat the body and they move the energy out of the dead body and into the living body of the scavenger, in the same way that the bear moved the energy from the leaf into his or her body. So once it gets into the scavengers, um, the same thing happens. Uh, the energy transformation keeps going until the scavenger meets up with the parasite. And then the parasite takes the scavenger down for everything he or she is worth. And the scavenger is left ragged, worn down, or dead. And then somebody else comes along and eats the scavenger's body. And the process continues and continues and continues. But the end point of every transportation cycle is meant for a parasite. Okay, so let's compare this to uh, us being the end-all, be-all of the world. Um... I would say that somebody has been grooming us humans to be a parasite. That's what I would say. If we're the end-all be-all, we're the end of the highway, and we can 
look at our relationship with earth and see that we are in effect killing the earth. A relationship where one of the people in the relationship, one of the entities in the relationship ends up dying. That's a parasitic relationship. So um, as I see it, we humans are either precariously close to becoming parasites or we already are parasites. Out in the world, there are many chances for energy transformations. And there are so many life forms. Um, here on Earth, the vast majority of energetic transformations take place inside and be in between, or yeah, insider and in between life forms. Whether it be the bacterium, the yeast cell, or the human. Uh, on Earth, the most common type of life form is the parasite. Parasites far outnumber any other life form. Um, plants, herbivores, scavengers, predators, um, single-celled organisms. You know, parasites, um, there's a parasite for every type of life form on Earth. And quite often there's more than just one. There's, my goodness, how many does the human have? <laughs> it's a lot of parasites for everyone else. It's, it, they far outnumber everybody else. When you look at it from this perspective, when you really look at, at what's going on here on Earth, um... You can say, well, we humans are either a parasite or being groomed for that. And you can see another way of looking is that just plain old life forms are developed to sort of catch every possible nuance of energy that's being lost to the environment. Um, it just makes so much sense to me that... Um, it's a really efficient way for parasites to get what they want, which is really a main line right into energy. Um, especially when you realize that for most life forms, energy is a premium. Uh, and then the parasites, they have it easy because their food source is always available. And unfortunately, when you look at humans, our food source is also always available. So there are many different ways that you can see that we're sort of parasites. I don't, there's no nice way of saying that. It's just, that's the way it is. But when I hear people talking that everything has been made for our benefit, um, ugh, I, I'd like to to put that to rest. Partly because when we think that everything's been made for our benefit, it's really hard for us to see that something bad is happening because we're so excited that everything's been made for our benefit. We don't look at it from the other side. Um, and it's a possibility that every parasite feels as if the world is their oyster. Who knows? I don't know how other parasites feel. Um, but I know that 
that particular feeling is one that we probably don't want to feel anymore. Um, we want to move away from this someone who has been grooming us to become a parasite. And I have a word of caution for us, even if we are the biggest, baddest parasite on earth, which is what we, how we describe ourselves, um, we're not the ultimate farmer. We are not the ultimate parasite. Something else has been in charge of setting everything up perfectly. And all we need to do is just to be able to figure out who this unknown entity is. And that's why we need to look very carefully at what is happening on Earth. We need to be able to see who is it that's ultimately benefiting from all of the energy transformation and all of the energy movement that is going on constantly here at, on Earth. So through all that, I'm hoping that your perspective has been changed just a little bit. And I'd like you to look at the cell with me. Because um, I want to look and see what the fundamental building blocks of the cell are. And of course, this is because um, everything that's alive, everything that we consider to be alive, has a cell. Everything. Um, Although I, I guess the way that I would describe a virus is more, it has the cell casing. It doesn't really need a full-on cell because if you look at things from the point of view of the virus, um, the animal that it's going to be parasitizing is sort of like the inside of their body. Um, In many ways, the virus is the most efficient parasite of all of us because it doesn't have a body. We're the body. Um, okay, so let's get back to the cell uh, because the cell is the building block of the life form, which, of course, includes the virus. Um, and the fundamental building blocks of the cell are nucleic acids, which are RNA and DNA. That's two of them. Um, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, RNA, ribonucleic acid. Um, the nucleic acids contain the instruction manual, both for constructing the cell and for fixing it. The next thing that we have are proteins, and we just talked about proteins that are made of amino acids. Uh, proteins are structural molecules. They're, they're huge molecules, and they they're bent in a certain way. They're folded. Um, and sometimes they're folded in such a way that they're, um, they're like uh, spring-loaded. And so they can act as a door. And if you trip the spring, it'll flip. And it'll uh, shoot something into the cell. Or if, if you're on the inside, uh, the spring-loading can be that it'll trip and it'll send something outside the cell. So the... The proteins, because they have this flip mechanism, can be a door. Um, then we have lipids. Lipids, we could describe them as fats, but they're really much more than fat molecules. Um, they're, they're basically just molecules that are not soluble in water. And so the lipids form a barrier. They keep things out. 
And then we have this other group of, of uh, molecules. They're called glycans. Or we could call these sugars, but glycans are really much more um, chains of sugar molecules, long chains, uh, which you could also say are long chains of carbon molecules. So, for instance, if you look at a newspaper, uh, the newspaper is made mostly of glycans, which, as I said, are long, long, long chains of molecules that are uh, sugars hooked one in after the other together. In a newspaper, those long chains of sugars are bonded in a certain way, which we cannot eat, we humans. And the way that those sugars are bonded together, it's called cellulose. Um, we do eat other plants uh, that also have long chain sugar molecules, but they're bonded differently. And we do have the enzyme that enables us to digest those. So those long chain sugar molecules, when we can eat them, are called starch. Okay. I'm going into detail with the glycans because it's important to understand um, that because they form the structure of the cell, uh, they can also be the glue and they can communicate. Um, but this is, this is pretty important. If, if uh, a virus is going to try and trick a cell to letting them in, um, the viruses come straight to the glycans and they try to trick the glycans. All right, so by the way, um, I know that there's plenty of scientists who say that um, viruses are not alive. You can read it, gosh, nearly all the time. But for all the talk of not being alive, viruses are made of the same stuff that everybody else is. Viruses have nucleic acids, they have lipids, they have proteins, and they have glycans. And because they are a parasite, they really don't need anything else. They can get everything they need from somebody else's body. And the virus is really, it's been carefully constructed. And it has created, it is the one that is creating what we would call creation, this life form this uh, system of life forms that live on Earth. Um, in large part, we're created by the virus. And this isn't really discussed in any way. Um, but let me, there, there's another, um, it's not a molecule exactly, but there's another thing which is necessary for life. Um, it's never classified this way, uh, at least the way that I see it. it I, I don't think they classify it this way. Um, it's, it's because it's only part of a molecule, maybe. But there's this other thing that is necessary for life besides the proteins and the glycans and the lipids and the nucleic acids. There's This other thing is an ion, which is um, a charged particle. It's a charged part of a molecule. This particular ion that I'm talking about is called phosphate. Um, the phosphate ion. Um, it's absolutely necessary for life. Absolutely. 
and the phosphate ion has one phosphorus in the middle and then four oxygens around it. And when you look at it the way I've drawn it, um, you kind of have to be able to see it in three dimensions because it's hard to, if you've never done this before, um, there's a way that people draw molecules on a piece of paper to sort of clue you in that they are actually a three-dimensional object. Um, I'll show you how I want you to look at this in a second, but this phosphate ion has a charge of negative one, which means it has an extra electron, and it's looking to give that electron away to another ion that it has, that is missing an ion, and that way it can form a bond. Um, but I'm just, I'm trying to make developmental biology as simple as possible. This phosphate ion, um, it is so necessary for life. <laughs> uh, it's necessary for viral life. Uh, viruses rely on this phosphate ion just as much as we do, just as much as a plant does. Um, okay, so this phosphate ion, it is in the shape of a pyramid. And when something's in the shape of a pyramid, if you look at the pyramid just for a second, the one oxygen above the phosphorus, that's the point. And then the corners are the other three uh, oxygens. And then, of course, in this pyramid, the, the phosphorus would be somewhere in the middle of it. But And then the oxygens are the, the corners. Um, We've, we've speak, we've, I've spoken about pyramids before. Um, if you go back a couple of episodes, uh, one of those episodes that I was talking about quantum mechanics, I talked about the, the pyramidal shape of matter. And I said that in matter, in this pyramid of matter, the top um, has weight, it has mass, and the bottom, all the subatomic particles that are on the bottom, they don't have mass. And this is opposite from the way that I think many of us would figure that things are. That the, I would figure that the subatomic particles on the bottom of the uh, pyramid would form sort of the foundation of the pyramid and that they would have the most mass. But that's not how uh, quantum mechanics says that mass is structured, how it's ordered. It says that the subatomic particle with the most mass is at the top, at the point. Um, and quite often uh, in quantum mechanics, these pyramids are sort of facing one another, um, sort of like the sands of the, the hourglass. Let's see, I think I took that out, but that's okay. We'll, we'll talk about that at another time. Um, so this pyramid, whenever you see a pyramid in nature, um, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say the pyramid, it's sort of a, it's a sign to us that we're talking something about the Higgs boson and we're talking about control. So whenever you see a pyramid, check for totalitarianism somewhere in the region. And... In the episode where I was talking about mass, I said that there's a, a subatomic particle that's responsible for giving everything its mass. 
and I said that that particle was the Higgs boson. And as I'm continuing to look at this, I'm understanding that the Higgs boson, while it is a particle, it's also a force. And so we have to ask, what is a force? And then I'd like to also ask, what are the other fundamental forces in our universe? Because I would, one of them would, should be the force of gravity. But um, here's the pyramid again. Uh, pyramids are always pointing to the Higgs boson. Okay, so a force is, well, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's a force is when you make someone do something that's against their will, something that they don't want to do. And I know that scientists would not like forces to be described that way, but nevertheless, I think it probably is a very good description of force, even scientifically, because um, if you're going to force something to move, because um, that's the other definition of force, an action that results in movement, if you're forcing something to move that didn't want to move, um, you're pretty much making it do something that it didn't want to do. So uh, our concept of force may need to be um, looked at again. We always figure that forces are these great things, but really, I'm not so sure about that. Um, okay, so the Higgs boson is a force, and the gravi gravity uh, is also a force. So <clears throat> we have on Earth this major relationship, which um, it sort of permeates everything. It's the first law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics, the third law of thermodynamics. I think there's a zero law of thermodynamics. All of them have to do with work in one way or another. So we've got this uh, relationship between force and work. Uh, basically, force plus energy equals work. Uh, we here on Earth are always trying to make things work. We want them to work out. We have to work for our survival. There's something about work that's all around us all the time. And this Higgs boson, which is a force and which gives mass to, mass to things. I tend to say weight, but really the Higgs boson just gives mass. But weight is an idea that comes with another of the fundamental forces, the force of gravity. So mm, you might ask, is there a fundamental particle, subatomic particle, that has to do with gravity? Um, and no, they don't, they don't, they can't find it. So it's, they're thinking it's the Higgs boson. So here we have the Higgs boson. Um, and I, I'm saying that it's a push because that's, in nature, that's what forces do, they push. So the Higgs boson comes along and it, it pushes things. And I would say off of a cliff. And I would say that the Higgs boson pushes things off of a cliff because um, our universe is made of things that are falling and we're accelerating while we're falling. And of course, 
That's gravity. Um, we are in an, a universe that is accelerating as we're falling through space. And our eventual end, I'm saying, is when we hit zero Kelvin. Right now we're at three Kelvin, more or less. We started out at some huge number of Kelvin. I, I don't even know what it was. Um, I think 10 to the, I don't even know, 31. I mean, it was, it was very, very warm. Um, but now we're down to three. So uh, we're getting close to the end. Um, and this, of course, is an energy of isolation. And three is not quite as bad as one, uh, zero. I'm sorry, zero Kelvin is complete isolation. But three, we're very isolated, but we obviously still have some contact with others. Um, if you want to know more of what I've said about the trajectory of our universe, um, there is, I think there's another, I don't know, three episodes that all have to do with quantum mechanics. Um, if you look in the episode description of... Uh, this podcast, you should be able to find something that I've said about us accelerating through space. Okay, so this Higgs boson pushing things off the cliff. Um, you know, giving things weight, giving things mass. Um, it's kind of a strange thing. Uh, but the Higgs boson is a force that requires our belief, this giving mass to things. You can look at it with uh, President Trump. You have to believe in President Trump. Um, he's trying his hardest to get people to believe in him. And actually, he doesn't really have to try very hard. Um, there are people that will believe in him no matter what he does. And we know this. Um, so it's, it's really the only the only subatomic particles that have mass are those that are interacting with the Higgs boson. And the more that you interact with the Higgs boson, the more mass that you have. So there's others of us who do not interact with the Higgs boson, and we have no mass. And in the universe, when you have no mass, you just sort of roll off, and you have... The, the universe is sort of... Um, it's in the shape of a, a big old cowboy hat, like a Stetson. Um, and instead of being on the crown of the hat, if you have no weight, you just sort of roll off and you're sitting on the brim, waiting. Um, so there's belief involved in this. And, and there, the truth of the matter is that um, none of us have to believe in the Higgs boson None of us have to interact with the Higgs boson. Um, all of us could be sitting on the brim, just waiting. Uh, although the opposite seems to be true, and so we spend our life, um, we in fact design our life around this need to climb up the ladder of success. But when we look at it this way, we can... Just see that we, if we let go of our belief, it will be immediately distanced from the Higgs boson. And here is why we want to distance ourselves from the Higgs boson. Uh, 
Higgs boson is liberty. Um, especially now that we know that the Higgs boson is a force, that means that liberty is a force. Uh, so if liberty is a force, then it means that liberty is making people do things against their will. It means that liberty is making people do things that they shouldn't be doing. And describing both the Higgs boson and liberty in this way, to me, means that they are not fundamental forces. They are not fundamental subatomic particles. Although both the quantum mechanics and the U.S. Constitution would have you absolutely believe that liberty and the Higgs boson are fundamental. You know, in American society today, we are acting as if liberty is a limiting reagent, but there's, the fact of the matter is there's too much liberty around, way too much. We're swimming in liberty, and it's killing us and everything around us. And so our question then becomes, what if matter had no mass? What would be possible then? If we moved far enough away from the Higgs boson that none of us have mass, we all matter, but we have no mass, um, what would be possible? for our society? I think this is the scientific question that we need to be answering. It's a, it's a very good question, if I do say so myself. All right, let's return to the phosphate ion. I want to follow this pyramidal structure, the phosphate ion, through biology, through our bodies. Uh, because if the pyramid meets control, if the pyramid means force, then we need to understand it uh, if the pyramid is pointing directly at the Higgs boson. So when I started out, of course, I was talking about phosphates. And as I mentioned, the phosphate is a pyramidal structure. Uh, it's got the one phosphorus in the middle, the three oxygens on the bottom, and the one oxygen pointing up towards the top of the pyramid. And as I mentioned, it's this phosphate ion that absolutely makes a life form possible. Phosphate is the ion that makes life in form possible. And this is the weird thing and the big connection point for me at least. Uh, since phosphate is the little ion that, that uh, makes life possible, where do you think it comes from? It comes fully formed from rock. It's a mineral and um, it's very plentiful in the rock that makes up Earth. So in this way, we get our, our life from Earth. Um, how, how is this possible? If, if we are getting our life from Earth, but the rock isn't alive, um, isn't that a little weird? To me, it's a little bit weird. Um, let's ask what the, the phosphate ion does. The phosphate ion, it moves energy around inside the cell. Remember I talked about energy transformations, moving 
energy from one life form to another. Uh, phosphate ion moves energy from one place in the cell to another. Phosphate is in nearly every important cellular process dealing with energy inside the cell. Um, it's an ion that works and it comes from rock. It's a mineral. And we think Earth isn't alive and we pay no attention to her. We look to the skies when we want advice. And we look to either God or the universe but it's really Earth that we need to be in communication with. Um, these viruses, they know that it's the phosphate ion that is giving us life. Um, have you ever thought about how the plant cell makes sugar from sunlight? Well, the answer is the phosphate ion, uh, the plant cell captures the energy of light and it stores it in the form of sugar. And to do this, the plant cell uses this ion, the phosphate ion. I'm drastically oversimplifying this because there's more than one phosphate ion. It's a big molecule, blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, um, the phosphate ion is, is the, the active part of this molecule. So of all of these molecules that deal with energy inside the cell, so when the cell needs to access the energy that it has stored, what does it use? Well, it uses the phosphate ion to access the sugar. It uses the phosphate ion to cut off the sugars off of the chain, transport the sugar inside the mitochondria. Um, got a picture of a mitochondria. Oh, there's the rock. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. What was I trying to find here? Let's see here. Oh, I was supposed to have a picture of a mitochondria somewhere around here. Let me try to, oh, there it is. Okay, the mitochondria. Um, so it, it transports the uh, sugar into the mitochondria where the sugar gets chopped up. In all of these places, in all of these steps there is the ion phosphate there waiting to help out um, if you want to look this stuff up on your own and i have a ton of um, scientific literature to help us out through this that it's listed below but um, think photosynthesis think krebs cycle think cellular respiration um, all of those have to do with the phosphate ion and here's the thing these pathways that use the cell, uh, or I'm sorry, these pathways that the cell uses for accessing energy and then liberating it, um, when, it when they cut the sugar, these pathways are well established, that, which means that they don't change, really. Um, so essentially we humans are much more like a bacterium than we realize. We are much more like a yeast cell than we realize it. We are related to all other life forms. All other life forms are a part of our larger family. So rather than thinking that everything here on earth is placed here for us to take advantage of, we could just as easily view everything on earth as being part of our family. And here's the weird thing. 
uh, about the phosphate ion. It's an enzyme, which means that it, it sort of just helps out. It's not used up, it's not consumed in, in any of these reactions. It just helps the process along. Um, so the getting of energy, the storing of energy, the liberating of energy, the phosphate ion is there, but it's not really a part of what's going on. It's just a helper. It's an enzyme. And here's the really weird thing. This phosphate ion and all of these really complicated mechanisms. I mean, we used to have to study the Krebs cycle in high school, even if you didn't ever want to study developmental biology. Um, they're complicated, these uh, these pathways, uh, but they're also pretty much the same between different life forms. And they arrived fully formed into the life form, basically right from the beginning when the cell was first forming. Um, it had these pretty well established uh, chemical pathways that still exist. Uh, on Earth four billion years later. Um, so the cell has evolved with several of these fully functioning metabolic pathways already established. And this is so weird and so unusual. And I look at scientists who just take it for granted. And I hear scientists talk about um, some sort of cosmic crap game. Um, and we won the crap game because um, it's so unlikely that, I don't know that all of these uh, chemicals could just sort of find their way through to, I don't know, being this well-placed chemical pathway. It's, um, I don't know, they've, they've taken a lot of assumption for granted, scientists have at this part in their uh, theories, and I know that I'm sounding this is taboo, what I'm saying, really, but it's true. Um, the formation of life on Earth, as we know it, because, of course, we say that life is not, Earth is not alive, but uh, something that just sprung into form. And, of course, uh, science is in a war with Christianity, so when they say that, well, we don't have a creator, blah, 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 because they don't want God to be the creator, but they didn't ever look at anything else as being the creator. They just uh, entered into this war with Christianity and um, started arguing about whether or not there was a creator or not. Um, you know, we're talking about belief, of course, and we have this belief, obviously, that um, this whole thing is ripe with beliefs, but uh, this life f springing fully formed out of the ocean, I guess, is what I'm talking about. Um, this story exists in, in uh, Greek mythology because Venus sprung fully formed from the castrated genitals that were tossed into the ocean uh, of her father. Venus is the result of trauma. She sprung fully formed out of the ocean and she came out of trauma. And so my question, I guess, is 
is that the same reason that the cell sprang fully forth from the ocean? What kind of trauma? Is it the same trauma? Is the story of Venus um, telling us of this story of the cell springing fully formed from the ocean? Similarities are pretty, pretty close. So I'm going to be honest about the way that I look at belief. Uh, to me, belief is weird. And at a, at a deeper level, uh, belief is something so hideous and horrible. And yet, it is also something that we absolutely cling to. And at the point at which we no longer are clinging so closely to our beliefs, we are going to look back on this time. And it will be our forever sorrow. Because essentially what belief is doing is it's keeping us from maturing. It's like a pill that we're taking. We are being fed a diet of pills, really of belief. And when we take this belief and we swallow it hook, line, and sinker, we don't really notice anything. We don't really feel anything. And we don't really do anything. We become extremely docile. And of course, having docile animals on your farm makes it easy to have a farm. So it makes sense that we are um, swallowing this diet of belief and that it's keeping us asleep. Um, we, we like to talk about our unconscious quite a bit. Um, there's even... I think a university in California that'll give you a master's degree talking about your unconscious. We love our unconscious. But basically we have an unconscious because we have a belief system. And what it is, really, is this belief system is keeping us in a stage of infancy, or at the very least, immaturity. As far as I can see it when I look around, belief is something that is keeping humanity acting as if we were two years old. We are very much like two-year-olds. In the United States, we are still talking about how to treat one another, and we can't seem to decide if it's okay um, to let people die because they are not as important or as valuable as someone else. Is that okay? Many people would say that, yes, it's, it's absolutely fine to let someone die who's not valuable. Um, we here in the United States, we can't decide if women should be in control of their own bodies. We've been talking about this for years, and we can't decide it. In the United States, we can't decide if we should still be pursuing this slavery thing. As long as we allow the conversation to keep going, we're still permitting it. And as long as we can't decide, uh, we should be realizing that we are participating in a great evil. And the evil that we are participating in is the evil of controlling another person. Um, we just don't know that it's evil because we tend to pay people quite a lot of money to be controlling. Uh, and we 
end up giving quite a lot of respect to those people that we allow to control us. But without belief, we are free to see that the control is one of the greatest evils that has ever been perpetrated. And in fact, control is at the heart of any violence that you will experience. So I listen to the news and I listen to my friends and my family talking. And I don't see anybody looking at the pandemic in the way that I see the pandemic. Nobody is looking at the virus in the way that I see the virus. And um, I think that this pandemic time is really, uh, it's a very good time to look at the virus because it's right in front of us. It's right here and we can learn a lot by looking at it. But instead we spend a good deal of time blaming each other. We say it's, it's their fault they're not wearing the masks. It's their fault. They're making me wear a mask. They're not staying at home. If you look at the pandemic from the virus's point of view, um, you can see that the virus is having Christmas in July and in August and in September and in October and probably in November. It's Christmas in July. The virus has come to feast on us and we are not seeing it. We are not seeing what the virus is doing because we haven't paid any attention to viruses. The virus is attacking our cells, and the virus is using the phosphate ion to do it. Yes, in the exact same way that we do, to capture energy, to store energy, to liberate energy. It's exactly what the virus is doing. Um, essentially, the virus is taking our energy from us. The virus is taking our energy, and they are hijacking our system for producing energy within the body. They are changing our system for producing energy, making it less efficient. In effect, the virus is attenuating our energy metabolism. The virus is interested in having us exist just above the line between life and death. And this may not yet be obvious, but as the time goes on, uh, I'm going to be figuring out how to describe what I'm seeing. Um, just know that the virus is making access to energy an issue for us. Um, this virus is playing with energy as a limiting reagent. And yet so many of us still say that viruses are not the problem. So what I'm saying is that viruses, and there is scientific evidence to back this up, I'm saying that um, viruses were the ones responsible for putting mitochondria inside our cells. Mitochondria are the powerhouses. Um, and the viruses made sure that there was a powerhouse in each of our cells. And then the viruses gave us enzymes that we needed to catalyze the burning of sugar, Viruses made sure that we have the enzymes necessary to build the sugar in the first place. Viruses drove the formation of the mammalian placenta. Uh, they fashioned humans to have a large head size and a large brain. And all of us, all of this should lead us to wonder exactly what and who the viruses are. Earth made sure that the things that viruses touch have a pyramidal shape so that we can notice them. but 
we so far have been too busy to notice this. And it's odd because as I was researching all of this, I came across an article written by the Institute for Christian Research. Bible-believing Christians began doing their own research. I don't know when. Um, it was over evolution. So sometime in the last, I suppose, 30 years, Bible-believing Christians, and I believe uh, Hobby Lobby is a part of this, uh, started doing their own research when they stopped liking what science was saying. And Christians don't like evolution. And I, I wonder why, but I think it's because it points directly at them. Um, the interesting and odd thing is that this Institute for Christian Research is saying the exact same thing that I'm saying. Everything that I'm saying, basically, uh, they said in one tiny little article. Um, it's just that the Christians think that uh, pointing to the virus and saying that they did this, it, it um, makes a pretty good argument for God. But I don't, I don't think that the Christians quite know what they're saying. So I'm going to click on this and we're going to go to the Christians uh, website here. So could a virus jumpstart the first cell? Um, Evolutionists have had a hard time imagining how mitochondria evolved. Uh, this one's written by Brian Thomas. One theory is that these cellular powerhouses originated when bacteria invaded a primitive cell. Um, they talk about enzymes in this article. I'm going to scroll all the way down. Oh, here's the, here's the paragraph that I want to read. Though the study authors mentioned these concepts in their paper's abstract, they're talking about some scientists' papers that they didn't like, um, they're saying that they didn't explore them in the rest of their report. However, it is apparent that the mitochondrial RNA polymerases method of interacting with DNA are fine-tuned to the microscopic world of the cell's mitochondria not to that of viruses. Insisting that such a fine-tuned machine arose by a chance viral infection and that the viral machine just happened to modify and integrate so perfectly as to activate mitochondrial machinery is too much to ask of nature. But of course, fine-tuning molecules that enable life is not too much to ask a super-intelligent being to accomplish. Indications are clearer than ever that God purposefully engineered the machinery of life by using uh, viruses. <laughs> I kid you not. Okay. So if the Christians are claiming that God and viruses work in tandem, then that explains why Trump and his fans do not want to wear masks because they're on the same side as the viruses. If God and viruses were the ones who domesticated humans, um, basically, we're living in captivity because of God and viruses. And Christians are the ones saying this. Um, so, I'll, I'll leave that for now. 
we have pyramids in other parts of our body too. Almost on a daily basis, I hear people talking about lizard brains, always in a negative sense. Um, this is supposed to be some sort of put down to the people who are aggressive and violent. I'm not sure why they talk about lizard brains. Um, I love reptiles. I love amphibians. Um, I always have troubles telling which are which, but um, tortoises and turtles are reptiles, uh, and neither of them are violent or aggressive. So this lizard brain, would it surprise you to know that it is associated with pyramidal cells? Would it surprise you to know that it is a part of the brain that is much more ancient than lizards are? Um, and it's just like the cellular pathways, this part of the brain is conserved which means that it's pretty much the exact same thing as far back as you can go. When people are referring to the lizard brain, they are really referring to the basal ganglia, which is a structure that is meant to control movement. Um, and as I said, it's, it's much more ancient than a lizard. It's more likely that it came from a horseshoe crab. Uh, I think I have to go back to get the horseshoe crab. I saw the horseshoe crab back here. There it is. Um, the horseshoe crab is a very ancient animal. It's related to a snail. So what's the message of this basal ganglia? The message of the basal ganglia is that we are more related to the horseshoe crab than we could ever know. And this little horseshoe crab is pretty interesting. It's, it's tied to the tides of the ocean. And the basal ganglia inside this horseshoe crab is responsible for an internal clock that's inside the horseshoe crab. Um, but it remains, uh, we're, we're very similar to this horseshoe crab. Um, in, in us, it controls movement. And that, of course, from what I can see, is the meaning of uh, the cancer archetype in the astrological chart, the crab. We need to get back to our roots. We need to get back to the tides of the ocean and to the internal clock that comes from those tides. So what I'd like to switch to is the similarity between the human being and human history. We humans, actually every life form, uh, we burn sugar for energy. And of course, I've been talking this whole time about the enzymes that make the burning of sugar easier inside the cell. And so it happens at a much reduced temperature. Uh, that's why we are only 98 point, I don't know, 6 Fahrenheit. Uh, when a, It's the same reaction as a, a, a bonfire outside on the beach. The bonfire is at a much higher temperature, however, than the bonfire that's going on inside our cells. But it is the same chemical reaction, whether it's a candle or a piece of wood or the gasoline that's exploding in your car. Uh, it's the very same chemical reaction. Uh, this long chain carbon molecule, whether it be gasoline or the cellulose in wood or the petroleum in a candle, um, when it's burned, it's forced to lose an, a carbon and two oxygens, and also a water molecule. And it liberates energy in the middle of all that. I guess the, the difference is that inside our cell, we use the 
the phosphate ion to make that reaction happen really easily. And when it's a candle on your birthday cake, you sometimes have to use quite a lot of force to get the the match to light, but or the candle to light. Anyway, um, human history has largely been an epic chase after the sugar molecule. Sugar was one of the reasons for why the slave trade began in 1619. And if we just look at United States history, uh, we ended up taking over Hawaii and we made it a place to grow sugar cane for rum. And then the United States went into Guatemala. It went, in, it went into Cuba. Um, we began our conquest of oil when we went into Iran in the early 1900s. And the U.S. has been pursuing our interests in the Middle East ever since. We have quite a distance to go to figure out our relationship with ourselves and with other people here on Earth. And this sugar thing, it's essentially an addiction, which is really another way to describe domestication. Because domestication makes you dependent. And... Uh, it can make you dependent on power and control. It can make you dependent on substances. And sugar is one of the substances that we have humans uh, who are dependent on. That milk. When you see how much milk we drink, you can easily see how we are reverting into being small children. And this is exactly the way the virus wants us. Dependent, immature, unsure of how to reach out and be a support to the person standing next to, next to us. But we can figure this out. We, we just have to do it together. And so I'd like to talk about one more thing, karma. There's quite a lot of talk about what karma is. And I hear a lot of people talk about karma as some sort of punishment system for wrongs that were committed. Uh, what goes around comes around. But punishment is not an energy of the universe or of Earth. So what is karma? Karma is what is holding us back. Karma is what is imprisoning us. Karma is the opposite of freedom. It is control. It is doing whatever we want to. Karma is what we work at. It's what we work on. Karma is what keeps us from being free. Karma is our belief in the Higgs boson, our belief in liberty. And when we give up our need for liberty, we will be ready to live in freedom. Karma is our dependence on sugar. This is the message of the Higgs boson. Human history's attempt to control long-chain carbon molecules, gasoline, sugar, alcohol, and that phosphate ion that has been with us all along. Well, it's important for sure. In essence, what I'm saying is that sugar, gasoline, and alcohol have all been foundational building blocks for human history. And then you see that the COVID virus has been t attacking our mitochondria in our cells. And suddenly we have the convergence of much of human history all happening right now. We're still at this intersection. We're still at this crossroads. Who has been trying to control us and why? How do we stop the virus from controlling us? What else is happening that we're not seeing? These are all good questions. 
And so I will leave you for today with these questions. If you need to contact me, my phone number is 720-608-0309. And my email address is governmentalastrology at gmail.com. I'm also going to be redoing my website. Um, I hope to redo it very quickly. I have some writing that I'm going to be putting up on it. Um, I'll put a link to the website in the notes. So, as always, I'm glad you're here. <laughs>